All Things in the Name of Love, with your host, Dr. Erica Riesberg. Music performed and written by Megan Moreau. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul shine? I can feel it, yours and mine. Close your eyes and witness it inside. In your bones, you will know. Trust and let go. Episode 67, How Grief Can Connect You to Your True Self with Andrea Wilson-Woods. Today I have with me author Andrea Wilson-Woods, who's a writer who loves to tell stories, and boy does she, because I just read her book, and a patient advocate who founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Andrea is the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University, a for-profit social benefit digital health company. With Cancer U, Andrea synergizes her talents of coaching, writing, teaching, and advocacy. For 10 years, Andrea has worked in the education field as a teacher and professor for public and private schools, as well as universities. Andrea obtained her master's degree in professional writing from the University of Southern California. Her nonfiction writing has won national awards. And the book that I was blessed to receive from her is Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. And it's about the journey she had with her sister. And the first thing I want to comment about it is that what struck me the most is how you're balancing life. So you're taking what Adrian's going through, what you're going through, what's going on in the hospital and then outside of that like what's life events that are happening and it's just this really fascinating blend of of that of of life <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for having me on the show You're and welcome. thank you so much for reading the book and i was very specific about the structure it took me a long time to figure it out but once mm-hmm. i did i realized that that it really lent itself to a journal style, given that it was only 147 days. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just such a quick time. Yeah. I, it, I mean, it was awful. The, it struck me that, you know, here she's 15, which is really unusually young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the grace that she showed up with, just what a gift to have someone that powerful gracing you with her awareness and her insights and her deeper perspective through this journey. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? We're three minutes in, you're going to make me cry, Erica. <laughs> three minutes, okay? <laughs> no, I, I love what you just said. I feel like that you really got the sense of who Adrienne was. And actually her tombstone says, young spirit, old soul. Mm. And, and she was, I mean, she was a really old soul. And I think she made a huge impression on anyone who spent any amount of time with her. And you mentioned grace. And that's how I think of that cancer journey. She handled it with such dignity, grace, humor, and courage. And 
that's the way I measure my life now every day. Yeah. How have you, clearly your life has shifted a lot. Yes. Through the journey first and then since the journey, because it was 2001. Mm-hmm. And when I, I was only able to get up to 9-11 and... <laughs> I was actually writing a paper in grad school that day and I didn't even know what 9-11 was until I signed online at two o'clock in the afternoon and I thought it was a movie. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're in the West Coast, right? And I am now, but I was in Maine at the time. Okay. All right. So, so you were just out in the middle of nowhere. Right. I was in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. That's I think about Maine. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I grew up in Connecticut and I knew a lot of people in the area and, and to have that memory surface again and going, wow, that's such a like a point in time where you're going through this the final two weeks of her life. Mm-hmm. And that's a data point. And it, it seems both relevant and irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend from college who reached out to me after I'd written a blog post many years ago about just that day. And and she's said, yeah, it's significant for me because it was the day after her fiance died, I think. And he had lived a long time with cystic fibrosis. He wasn't expected to live past 20, but lived into his 30s. And so for her, that's what 9-11 is. It's it's not about the terrorist attack. It's about losing the man she'd been in love with for so long. Mm. It's a fascinating... I I remember doing an oral... This is not germane to necessarily the conversation, but you're triggering a thought. So when I was in grad school at the University of Maine, I was in part of a research project for the National Library of Congress to interview people on their experiences of 9-11. Wow. Um, It was really fascinating. And so one of the women was on the Appalachian Trail and somebody ran down the trail and said, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there interviewing and I'm like clenched over in empathy and compassion and going she was hiking on the Appalachian Trail like that's like the like east coast thing that you do if you're like super ambitious and want to get eaten by black flies <laughs> but but like to just be in that 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 isolation mm-hmm. and then to have somebody just suck you out of that that zen state into life back outside of it was shocking to me. Yeah. And you were similar to that. You were in that zone of isolation. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much focused on Adrienne and trying to get her well. And I I didn't comprehend 9-11 until January of 2002. I think it was the Super Bowl. And they, I think it was sort of this panel they did or something, but it was all the names of the people who had died in 9-11. And oh. it was just one name after another, after another. And that is when it really hit me. Yeah. Just the, the number of people, the devastation. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it wasn't just that we were 3,000 miles away. It was that you know, I, I had my own <laughs> right. um, terrorist and it was called liver cancer and we were trying right. to beat it. And that's all I could focus on. Wow. How has your life shifted? And, and specifically, have you felt her since she's left her body? I did feel her 
for a long time, those first few years. So I like to think that wherever she is now, one day for her is five years for us. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. how I like to think about it. So in her mind, she's only been gone a couple of days. And right. for me, she's been gone, it'll be 19 years. Wow. You know? And so that's how I like to think about it. I actually wrote the first draft of the book in her room where she died at wow. home. And I feel like I was really able to tap into her and channel her because I was in her room, mm-hmm. because I was there with her. And it's also the reason I didn't leave Los Angeles for such a long time because I felt like if I left and if I left the home where she died, I was somehow leaving her, which was not true at all. And to answer the first part of that question, when I was raising Adrian, I was an actress, but I was also a teacher to be on her schedule. And when she died, none of that really mattered anymore. And I turned 30 a year after she died. And I still acted a few more years. I actually taught for several more years, but I really took time to sort of figure out what it was I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I started a nonprofit dedicated to her type of liver cancer. Most recently, um, I have a digital health startup that we can talk about. Yeah. But it took me a long time to f- find my bearings again. It, it really did. Do you think her passing? I'm tuning into the question. Do you think her passing informed you into your life mission? Informed my life mission? Informed you to tune into your life mission? Yes. Okay. Yes. I had three premonitions and I talk about them in the book. And one premonition I've had since the day Adrian was born is I knew I would outlive her. I absolutely wow. knew it to my core, but I really thought she would be in her 50s and I would be in my 70s. That's what I thought. And then I had another premonition that I started to have this really irrational fear of cancer in my 20s. And I never told anyone about it. I couldn't put my finger on it. I'm not a hypochondriac, so I couldn't figure out what it was. And when I started to think about it, I realized it happened when Adrian moved in with me. And I had the fear was so irrational that when we got an ad in the mail, uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was, you know, raising money. If you want to run the LA Marathon, I signed up and I'm a horrible runner. (laughs) So that's how I I started doing marathons is I signed up and I was scheduled to do the marathon. Actually, it was the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon three weeks after Adrian was diagnosed and I ended up not doing it. I didn't do it to the following year, but that's how rational the fear was. I thought, well, if I just do a marathon, the fear will go away. Wow. Yeah. And then the third premonition was, to give it some backstory, Adrian has wanted to go to college since she was six years old, since she had first walked onto USC's campus when she came to visit me for two weeks during the summer. And to my dismay, she only wanted to go to USC. (laughs) I had all these big plans for her. I was like Harvard, Princeton, worst case scenario, Stanford or Berkeley, but I had these plans for her. And then- It came out that summer that she was ill, that no, she had every intention of staying in LA. She had every intention of going to USC and that was it. End of discussion. And I thought, I know it was really sweet. And I thought to myself, okay, I just, I just need to picture her walking down Truesdale Parkway, which is the main drag or USC 
And Adrian's also one of those people who has looked the same since she was 18 months old. I mean, you would know her from her baby pictures. I'm not that way at all, but she has always looked exactly the same. And same nose, same smile, same eyebrows, same eyes. And I could not picture her walking down that parkway at USC. And I have walked down it a thousand times maybe. And Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't see it even though how much she would have changed between 15 and 18 wouldn't be that much. Right. And I, I just, the way I describe in the book, it was like a, a puzzle and not, none of the pieces fit together. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, um, I get yeah. that. And it was, and, and I, I, I have premonitions, but I ran away from them for a long time because most of the time they weren't about good things. I get that. I had three when I was 11 and then I ran away from them for about 35 years. So. Yeah. Because they're scary. I mean, one was my dad was going to have a tragic death. Mm. He was going to be healthy, healthy, healthy. Then he ended up with a pancreatitis that turned into a staph infection and paralyzed in intensive care for three months. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. And I mean, it was 11 years ago. And and thank you. And I was just like, okay, I don't want to know anymore. Like I knew I was going to get a PhD. I knew I was going to marry, well, live with somebody that's older than me. And and that that was going to have a tragic death. And I was like, okay, I don't want to know anymore because that's yeah. scary. Yeah. And, and it actually, for me, it tuned me out from my intuitive self. And so how were you post Adrian able to open yourself up back to that? I didn't for a long time. Okay. I, I really pushed it away. I closed it off. I, I didn't allow it to come in. I don't, I don't think I allowed anything to really come in again until I did my first yoga teacher training when I was 40. It was a gift okay. to myself. Mm-hmm. And it was in Burbank, California. So I was still in LA. And that gave me a safe place with a safe group of people to be open again. Mm-hmm. And, and Adrian actually always encouraged me she really, she knew I was psychic. She encouraged me to be open to it. And when I allowed that to happen, I finally got good premonitions. <laughs> finally. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the best ones I, I don't think I've ever talked about on a podcast is during um, a meditation class at my favorite yoga studio, I saw this man and, and there was something so serene about him. I've never felt like that around anyone in my whole life. I've never felt that sort of peaceful, especially around a man. And I didn't know anyone who looked like him. And I didn't know who he was, but I was so drawn to him. And when I first saw him, when I saw him the first time, I told my meditation teacher and she was trying to help me figure it out. And she thought, well, maybe he's your spirit guide. And I said, no, no, Sandy, I'm going to meet this guy one day. And I think his name starts with an E. And I think it's two syllables. Oh gosh, I, I hope it's not Eric because that was my horrible boyfriend from college, you know? <laughs> so Sandy and I laugh. That was 2012. I'm still in LA. I'm still married. I met my now partner, Edward, in 2015 after I moved to Birmingham, Alabama. Wow. And I had totally forgotten about that until one day it hit me. And, and, and he didn't go by Edward until he met me. Really? Yeah. Edward's his middle name. Oh, interesting. And 
and one day it just, it just hit me and I was like, oh my gosh, I saw the younger version of him. Oh, wow. I just saw the younger version. Otherwise it's exact, the chiseled cheekbones, the runner physique. It was, it was totally him. And so one year when I was visiting Los Angeles, he was with me. We snuck into her meditation class. <laughs> awesome. And then, yeah. And so she's, you know, and the end of class is over. She's so excited to see me. And I said, Sandy, do you remember, do you remember when I had that premonition, that guy? And she's like, oh yeah. And I said, this is Edward. I, I thought she was going to pee her pants. That's so awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was amazing. It really was. It was. And he just kept showing up in my meditations. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So good. You can see good things. (laughs) Right, right, right. I have since then, but it took me like, you know, a long time to, to get to the point where I was like, okay, I can visualize really beautiful things too. I usually sense and hear things and... A lot more music lately, which is kind of cool because I get these really oh, awesome stuff wow. in. But how is that? I, you, so now you're open. Mm. How is that informing you with your life? Well, I don't hear things like you do. Okay. I um, very much feel or see them. Mm-hmm. And so if I have a question about something, I meditate on it, I pray on it, I actually meditate every day. I chant before I go to bed and chanting for me is, is kind of like a prayer. That's how it feels to me. It calms me down. And I lean into it now. I really, really trust my gut. And I, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't let me down yet. I mean, there have been times where in my gut, I knew I shouldn't do something and I did it anyway. And no, the gut was right. <laughs> Should have listened to it. I was so. When I look back at so many different times in my thirties after Adrian died, when I felt something, and I just didn't want to listen or didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to lean into. I didn't want to, and I resisted it. Something terrible always ended up happening, mm-hmm. or it didn't work out, or but I just didn't want to listen. Right. Yeah. So now that you have honed in on the listening skills. How has your life shifted? I am a much happier person and I am totally okay with who I am. And I've learned, yeah, I've learned that it's okay that I like who I am, good and bad. You know, (laughs) we all have faults and, and I really had to learn how to love myself before I could find the right person to love me. Yeah. And that was very hard to do, but it was exactly the kind of thing I needed to do. I mean, mm-hmm. when I left Los Angeles, a lot of people, when I say a lot of people, I'm talking about 99% of people <laughs> got really hung up on, I was moving to Birmingham, Alabama, even though all of my family's from the Southeast, even though my sister was born in Birmingham and it was not about moving to Birmingham. It was about the journey of leaving Los Angeles. Yeah. It was about driving across the country over four days with my cat who is still in my lap right now. <laughs> um, it was about being on my own for the first time in a really long time. It was about living by myself. I had never lived by myself before because 
LA is such an expensive place. Mm-hmm. I always had roommates or housemates or Adrian. Yeah. I had a little girl. So even if it was just the two of us, I didn't live alone. Right. And I, so I didn't live alone until my, my forties. Wow. And it turned out I, I like my alone time. I do. I enjoy solitude. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you go through the journey of learning to love yourself? One specific thing I did was I got the original text from A Course in Miracles. So not the Miriam Williamson version or not the Gabrielle Bernstein version. Nothing wrong with those, but that's their interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. So I got what would be sort of the Bible. I think it's two inches thick. It's really thick. Wow. And the goal of the course is to go through it over a period of a year. Okay. And that's what I did. And and there's one thing every single day. Mm. And it's not that every everything in the book rang true for me, but so much of it did. Mm-hmm. And that helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. I did a second yoga teacher training. That helped me as well. I became a certified coach and I already had those sort of innate skills to teach and to coach, mm-hmm. but but really went through a 10-month certification to hone those skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't coach other people if you can't, again, take care of yourself and coach right. yourself. Right. Yeah. So it was a number of things. That's um, beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Are you still um, teaching or at least practicing yoga now? I am. Awesome. I am. Is that part yeah. of your coaching practice? What is your coaching practice? I, I'm winding down my coaching practice. It actually okay. was a career coaching practice. And my niche was really, I helped people change jobs either in their current career or help them get a whole new career with highly transferable skills. Mm-hmm. So, And I tended to attract a lot of STEM clients. And, and I loved those clients because they were exceptionally smart people who really just tended to have low confidence. It wasn't that they couldn't do it. They just didn't know how to do it and they didn't have the confidence to do it. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet one of my most successful clients ever last November in Boston. We had never met and her entire life changed after she went through my program. And that was amazing to meet her. That's beautiful. Oh yeah. It was, it was really, really wonderful. I'm so proud of her. And, and she just, I mean, she just continues to fly. It's a great thing to see. That's beautiful because because the STEM the STEM graduates tend to because I live with an engineer. Oh, um, then you know. <laughs> I know. I mean, they're they're brilliant. They're amazing. They're kind. They're loving. And sometimes they're lacking in social skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for helping them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of my uh, clients, the female ones, especially the male ones, tend to be more that awkward. Mm-hmm. Female, very shy. Very shy. Yeah. The thought of attending a networking event was the worst thing on the planet. You know? yeah. <laughs> so cute. So you you hinted that you're transitioning out of and you're transitioning into something else. What are you feeling called to do? Well, my, my health tech startup is Cancer University. And it really is the culmination of all of my skills. It combines my skills of teaching and writing and coaching and advocacy and it came about as a way of trying to solve a problem. So I've been in the cancer space with my nonprofit 
for 17 years. And, and that's focused on liver cancer, which is what killed my sister. So it's a very niched cancer, very niche nonprofit. Yeah. But I kept seeing that even when patients and caregivers had the best possible information, 95% of the time, they didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like the give a man a fish or teach a man how to fish. And right. so I was pro bono coaching patients and caregivers all the time, you know, okay. giving them that how, teaching them the how. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like it was a problem that needed to be solved. And and I meditated on it. I chanted on it for many, many months. I must say it didn't happen overnight. But it just started to eat away at me to the point where I interviewed people who were who were natural advocates. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is what is it that makes people a really good advocate? And everything that those people had in common, myself included, they had a natural curiosity. It wasn't about being an extrovert or an introvert, but they just had a natural curiosity and wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. Combined with in their childhood, they were exposed to healthcare in a major way. So they weren't intimidated by doctors or hospitals. Interesting. Yeah. So in my case, um, my mother was a nurse. Mm -hmm. Another person I interviewed, you know, her father was a doctor, you know, another person, her parents worked for the healthcare system. So, yeah, I interviewed lots and lots of people and those were the two common factors. But you can still teach people how to become advocates. Mm -hmm. So I kept thinking about it and my sister's journey was so fast. Not everyone's is like that. But for us, the third day, I had to make major decisions about her treatment and all these acronyms are flying around, which I call the alphabet of cancer. And I felt like it was going back to school. And that's when totally it hit me. I was like, cancer, you, that is what it needs to happen. And like any good entrepreneur, I went to see if it existed (laughs) online. I uh, registered the trademark. I got the, I got the domain name. And I actually entered a competition. It's called the Estellas, uh, sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Estellas C3 Prize, Changing Cancer Care. It's an international competition they do every year. And that year, out of 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. And I threw together a web page. Like that's all I had. I had concept right. and nothing else. <laughs> Something, right? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. It really gave me the momentum and the push I needed to to vet the idea more and to see mm-hmm. if I was really onto something. So mm-hmm. so Cancer U is an online membership platform for cancer patients and caregivers to educate and empower them to become advocates for themselves, to improve outcomes, but also reduce cost. So mm-hmm. the business model is B2B to C. We don't ever want cancer patients and caregivers to have to pay for it, even though they are the members, our customers, our payers, employee health plans, providers, and pharmaceutical companies. Are you incorporating, because this is coming in, are you incorporating naturopathic modalities in? Yes. Yeah. 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 Those will be some of the courses as well. I I feel it's important to be very well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, I recently took something called Body Talk Access, which is an international organization, and it's a way of harmonizing the body. And I'm not suggesting anything other than the fact that I'm not suggesting anything at all because I'm not doing this, but (laughs) it feels like I'm being called to tell you about it, to put it on your radar screen because it's, it's a modality that harmonizes body systems. 
Wow. Well, you have to send me some more information. Yeah, I will. I will. I would love to, you know, have them do a workshop for our members. That would be amazing. I yeah. love that connection yeah. because I just feel like that needs to be something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Adrian believed in all this stuff. And one of the disagreements that we had was Adrian believed that she caused her cancer because in Chinese medicine, the liver is the organ of anger. That's where your anger resides. And she had really buried her anger about our mother and how, how our mother just gave up and gave up custody and, and her father who died before she was born. So we have the same mother, but different fathers. Okay. And she had buried all of that anger. Yeah. And so she really felt like, well, this is because of all that anger. And, and she worked through it. I mean, during that very short time, she, she worked through it, but it was hard for me as her parent and caregiver yeah. and sister. It was really hard for me that she firmly believed that the anger caused her cancer was very, very upsetting for me. Um, And, and knowing what I know, I can see both sides. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And and it's interesting too, because through yoga, I learned our lungs are where sadness resides and grief. Mm, Yeah. And through the years, I cannot tell you how many times I've had bronchitis. I have scar tissue on my right lung. Um, I don't smoke. I don't have asthma, but I, I, you know, I I spent so many years grieving. And so, you know, I feel like there's some truth to that. Yeah. Bodies, bodies are repositories of emotions. Mm -hmm. I know for myself that when I have intuition coming in, my teeth hurt. If I'm not paying attention, my teeth hurt. And it's like this ache and there's nothing wrong with my teeth. It's wow. just an ache. And it's like, okay, I know. All right, I'll meditate now. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I know it is. It's like, we tried everything else. Okay, your teeth are going to hurt now. <laughs> I don't want my teeth to hurt. Well, then you should sit down in meditation and pay attention. That's just how I've learned how my, my particular body works. And so it's this really fascinating journey of uncovering the layers to become who we are at our deepest core. And I wouldn't wish anything like what your sister went through on anyone or their caregivers. And yet I see that you've taken this heartbreak and you've transformed it into something that is really beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. It it, it truly started as a way to channel my grief. It, it really did. And it was very selfish in that sense. And that's how the nonprofit started. I was trying to channel my grief. I actually wanted to volunteer for the largest liver disease organization in the U.S. And I never say their name because we've worked with them before. But I always joke, if, if they had just said yes to me, my nonprofit never would have existed. But, but they said no. I wanted to volunteer for them. They didn't do anything with liver cancer. And I found out later that that was an edict in the organization. They did not want to deal with liver cancer, but I could see that liver cancer was going to be on the rise. And and it is, it's one of the only cancers in the U.S. that just keeps going up, up, up. And Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I, I just, this was late 2002, early 2003, and I did all the research and there was not a single organization dedicated to primary liver cancer, which is still considered rare in the U.S., 
It's one of the most common cancers in the world. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just so fascinating because from an emotional standpoint, yeah, there is, it's, it, it holds stuff. It's not just anger. It holds resentment. It holds a whole bunch of energies. Yeah. And if that's like a worldwide killer, yeah, there's a lot of anger out there that needs to be healed. Yeah. Yeah, there, there really is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's a remarkable organ, I which I totally did not appreciate until, <laughs> until you know it's you know I know Adrian think this was so funny. So she actually when she was in um, honors biology and they were studying the liver when this happened. That's too ironic. I know. And so when they were telling her, she was like, oh yeah, I know the liver. She knew more about the liver than, than I ever remember. And it was uh, it's interesting, but you know, it's the only internal organ that we have that regrows. Yeah. Um, we can't live without it. We can mm-hmm. live without our gallbladder. We can live without one of our kidneys. We can pretty much live without your stomach. There are enough shows on TV that show the gastric bypass, <laughs> but you can't live without your liver. Yeah. It's the anchor mm-hmm. and it's just this, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me how, like I I never fully appreciated the orchestra that I live within. That oh, that's a, a symphony of me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. You need to write that down. Oh, thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Because it is, because like each part interconnects and I, you know, I'm waving my hands because I'm thinking to wave my hands. However, there's so many aspects leading to the moving of my hands that I am not the least bit aware of. And yet I'm able to do so many things with them, right? It's like hands are just like, I try not to take them for granted, but they do so many things. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that every single body part has that same gift it gives you is is pretty remarkable. I do um, a daily meditation I learned from Michael Beckwith a few, I guess it was last month, where I say to every part of my body, I love you. Oh, I love that. By the time I'm done, I'm vibrating. Oh, that's beautiful. Because it knows, every part of me knows I love it. Yeah. And I do, I do think we take our bodies for granted. We, we do. We do. And they're so amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we do have to take care of our bodies. <laughs> we, yes, we, do. we do. Have you seen um, a shift in your personal caregiving since leaving LA? Like, oh like, yes, yeah. Oh yes, yeah. I was, I was already starting to incorporate a few things after that first yoga teacher training, and there were there were small things on the outside, but they were huge for me. And, and one is so simple: it, I shower at night now. I always love showering at night, but I got this thing in my head when I became a grown up and when I started college was you wake up in the morning, you shower. That's what people do. That's what grown ups do. And I just stayed with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why for years. And there would be times where even though I would shower in the morning and go ahead and shower at night again, because I just liked that better. And I like baths too. And when I, when I moved, uh, when I left LA, that was something like more permanent. I was like, okay, no, I'm showering at night. That's what I like. It winds me down. I enjoy it. I like to go to bed clean. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, and, and so I slowly started working in one thing at a time to the point now that I have a very specific morning routine and a very specific evening routine. 
And that really grounds me. I think it's mm-hmm. really helpful for all of us to have rituals. Mm-hmm. And it's not as easy when I travel, but I do a, much, a pretty good job still sticking to both of those routines. And you're not really traveling right now. <laughs> I am not. The last time I traveled was at the very end of February. It was right before all of this happened. Yeah. 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 yeah, every trip I was supposed to go on and or every conference I was supposed to speak at. Yep, can't yep. yep. Well, it gives, it gives you more time to solidify your routines. There you go. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that like I, I have so many morning routines. I laugh at myself because I wake up at around 6.30. By 7, I'm out of bed because I'm doing routines in bed. By around 8.30, I'm ready to have breakfast because I'm still doing rituals. And then I meditate. Like all of my practices, I'm like, I can't even really start work before 9.30. And it's not because I'm not awake. Yeah. It's just because yeah. I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy loving myself. Taking care, taking care of yourself. Yeah. Because if I don't show up for me, I can't really show up for anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think for people listening... Yes, it's very hard to do if you have young kids and you have a full-time job and and you're expected to cook and clean. I mean, I've been there. It is really, really hard to do. I don't think mm-hmm. I could do what I do now when I was raising Adrian. Yeah. But you can still find five minutes to yourself every day. Mm-hmm. You can. But I don't think most of us, especially women, make ourselves a priority. Mm-mm. We put ourselves last. And that's a shame. It is a shame. And it needs to stop because we are so important. Yeah, I think, I don't think, I know one of the reasons that I was so off my kilter, so not just grieving, but just off my center was when Adrian came to live with me. Well, it was a vacation and then it became a permanent stay. She became my center. Mm. And I always put her first. I put her before everything and everyone. And when she was gone, I didn't have that anymore. Right. And I didn't know what was supposed to be my center. Right. I didn't. And I got married a few years after Adrian died to someone who never knew her or knew that part of my life. And when I was telling Adrian's therapist and I, she's in the book, had dinner last year when I went to visit. Oh, it was nice. the first time, yeah, we had seen each other in a long time because just she really had to retire before she could connect with me again. And so, and so she was asking about my life and stuff. And I told her I got married and I wanted to be normal. Mm -hmm. And her first response without thinking twice was, well, but you're not normal. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I I said, thanks a lot. (laughs) But she's right. She's right. I was trying so hard to be someone I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Because I was trying to find my center. And isn't that the case with so many of us? We're always trying to like be something to make other people happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also try to find the happiness outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Does not exist. Does not exist. You have to find it within. Mm-hmm. Other people cannot make you happy. They can reinforce the happiness, but they can't sure. make you happy. Sure. They can share in the happiness. Yeah. Yeah, but you can't rely on someone else right. to make you happy. And, and my ex-husband took that burden on himself. Mm. And I sometimes wonder now if I didn't place that on him too. 
because he really felt responsible for my happiness, no matter how often I said he wasn't. And then those, those were really hard years Yeah, because I was grieving the whole time. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to see that you're smiling again. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one more question for you. Okay. That's not a hard one. Okay. Um, (laughs) How can people find you? Oh, well, if you just Google Andrea Wilson Woods, you'll find me. But if you want to learn more about the book, go to betteroffball.com and all of my social media is there. Awesome. Andrea, thank you so, so much for this beautiful conversation and sharing some of your life. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the, action, the action item of the week is to tune into one thing you enjoy and see if you can incorporate it into your life more often. It can be a bath, blowing bubbles, singing. Whatever it is, do it daily for five minutes. Okay, so I know the bath will take a little bit longer, but you get the idea. Do this for three weeks daily and see how it helps you shift. That's it for the week. Until next time, I bid you the highest peace, love, and prosperity. Namaste. of our soul shine I can feel it yours and mine close your eyes and witness it inside in your bones you will know trust and let go